You know why in the old days sailors and fishermen never learned how to swim? No, why? Because if you knew how to swim, it would take so much longer to drown. Sipping summer, smoothly sailing somewhere, cilantro, Sicilian, sexy, sit inside, satchel, satellite, surreptitious, sunbather, syrup, sail, salami, salamander, space, saddle, salad, silly, central Spanish, secret cinema. Hey everyone, welcome to The Secret Cinema, the obscure film podcast that's subtly life-changing. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Emily Neal to discuss Hampton Fancher's 1999 existential mystery, The Minus Man. During discussion, I compare the film to Albert Camus' novel The Stranger and argue that The Stranger would make a bad film. Well, it turns out that the novel had at least one high-profile adaptation, Lucino Visconti's 1967 film of the same name. I obviously haven't seen this film, and there doesn't seem to be any mainstream critical consensus on it, but I'd like to note that Roger Ebert's four-star review of the film, published in 1968, begins, quote, The curious fault of Lucino Visconti's The Stranger is that the film follows the book too closely, end quote. Also, while reading up on Hampton Fancher, I found a quote from him that's fairly relevant to the themes presented in The Minus Man. To quote Fancher, quote, I am interested in what it is to be human, as in humane, and how so much of our history is the opposite. The solution to that, to some degree, is empathy. We're lost because of our inability to live within our empathetic impulses, but the contradictions are intriguing. End quote. That's it for me, so here's Carrie with the plot summary. A young drifter named Van ends up in a Southern California town finds a room to rent in the house of a local married couple, and gets a job at the nearby post office. Everyone in this quiet little town likes Van, but his presence casts an invisible shadow over the community. What the town doesn't know is that Vaughn has killed before and will kill again. Our protagonist Van, played by Owen Wilson, is quickly revealed to be a serial killer, if a nonviolent one. Van tries to blend in and live something close to a normal life, but he is repeatedly visited by a conscience of sorts. Two police officers, played by Dennis Haysbert and Dwight Yoakam, that seem to exist only in Van's imagination. Our first clip, in which the two police officers interrogate Van, will give you a good idea of how this conscience regards Van and his actions, but of equal interest is the way Van reacts, or doesn't. Here's that clip. Don't give him shit. What's he giving us? What he means, Van, is you're just giving us stock answers. Well, I think one thing you guys ought to learn is that the story is mine. It belongs to me, so I, I think I'll tell it my way. No matter which fucking way you tell it, gas chambers where you're headed, Seeker. That's one gas. It's like Ted Bundy. Who? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he talked real big, too. But in the end, it took two deputies to hold him down. You got any friends, Van? It's not just us, is it? 
Unless you cop to this, we're not gonna be able to help you out. Once when I was young, I was laying in the grass and a spider crawled in my ear. And... And? Well, he crawled out again. Nobody home. Frankly, Van, I think he was hoping for something a little more substantial. Despite having a serial killer for a protagonist, the film is more interested in Van's day-to-day -day life and his interactions with the people in it, and a surprising amount of that revolves around his mundane job at the local post office. In our second clip, you'll hear Van talking about his job, as well as some of the film's occasionally mood-destroying music. Here's that clip. People take their carriers for granted, trust them not to read the sealed envelopes, or postcards even. They stick on their stamps and have faith. I deliver the mail, but never get any. But still, it's the best job I've ever had. I could do it forever. And to further underline the previous point, here's our third clip. Unexpected accumulations of mail can be a sign of trouble. If the carrier notices this, he takes the initiative. It either means the inhabitants have left unexpectedly and the mail must be saved, or it means something is wrong and should be investigated. Van gets his job with the post office thanks to the Derwins, a married couple played by Brian Cox and Mercedes Rule. Van rents a room from them, that of their absent college-aged daughter, and he quickly comes to see the darkness lurking under the surface of the Derwins' seemingly normal facade. In our final clip, a slightly bloody and beaten Mr. Derwin has come to Van's room late at night to talk and ends up getting a little too emotional. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of the Minus Man. You comfortable when you're out? It's not too hard on you, is it? First a little. But no, I like it. It's not hard. I got these mood swings. I start swinging, I'll swing out of here. I don't stop. She'll leave me. Oh. Let's talk about Christmas. Okay. Okay. You start. Don't be shy. Listen, if Karen's coming home for Christmas and you want I should leave for a while, it's okay, I can't. No, I don't want you to leave for a while. She's not coming home for Christmas. It's okay, I can. Halloween or the fucking 4th of July either. I just thought if she was coming home from college... College, but... my ass. A little Karen's not at college. If she is, it's news to me. I don't know where she is. Anyway. You're the daughter now, eh? Van the man. Secret cinema. Secret cinema. Secret cinema. 
Secret Cinema, and we have a guest again, our recurring guest, Emily. It's me, it's Emily. <laughs> and there's you here, Carrie, laughing, so Carrie's still here. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the way Emily introduced herself. I'm trying to do it different. Yeah. And uh, to balance out our last episode of a deeply stressful movie that made me sweat a lot, we watched a movie that made us all yawn. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I took and, a little nap. And nap a lot. Uh, the Minus Man. Directed by Hampton Fancher, uh, the wonderfully <laughs> named man who is, uh, oh, we'll, I'll get into his background a little bit later, but uh, what did you guys think of the movie? I guess, uh, Carrie, since you looked the most worried about this question, you start. <laughs> oh, brother. Uh, well, I think what a great title and what yeah. an undeserving movie. <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, I'm flustered because you've seen it before. I, it I have before. seen it once before, and it left very little impression on me. Very like I, I, as we watched it this time, I remembered certain things, but at the same time, I, I was asking myself, what happens next? <laughs> and it's partially because what happens in the movie is is fairly inconsequential. I think that uh, Hampton is going for more of an aesthetic and a, a tone, uh, maybe? I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't want to guess what Hampton's <laughs> doing, but uh, I think that that's what the movie's trying to accomplish, and I would say it does not accomplish that in an effective, worthwhile way. All right, well, Emily, what do you think about this movie? Well, like one of the trailers described it beforehand, calling it trance-like, you were kind of right <laughs> in calling it that. Because I wrote a note saying it just glides through, and the time doesn't really seem to... It doesn't matter what how much time has passed, but in real life it passes slower yeah. than the movie. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't terrible... The actors yeah. were great. Yeah, it was a single person in the movie I liked. Yeah. Well, I, I can agree with those. that. I would say that the thing the thing that was probably the most solid was the acting. Yeah. And kudos to Cheryl Crow for doing her best. Yeah. It was a good intro first performance ever. I mean like yeah, I, she did she did fine. I kept thinking about that song she wrote where she's like hanging out in a bar and with a guy. And they're just drinking the day away. Also, All first kill is the defense. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it wasn't his first kill. No, but in the movie, just if it makes you happy, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so dead? Um, <laughs> I every day is a winding road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit closer to death. Uh, I, Emily, you won't, this is the first time you've ever seen this movie. Yes. You basically knew nothing at all about this no, movie going into it. No, I watched that one cool trailer and that made me want to watch it. Which we will get into very soon. It uh, tricked and, me. And Carrie, you've, you said you've seen this once but you still are having trouble with it. I, this is the fourth time now that I've watched this movie. I hunted it down because first off, I looked it up and this is... Basically, this this guy Hampton Fancher, he this is the only thing he's ever directed, and he is fancher. primarily known for writing, uh, well, co-writing 
the first Blade Runner and the Blade Runner that just came out this year. He also wrote a screenplay called The Mighty Quinn. I know nothing about that movie, so I'm not going <laughs> to even touch on it. But he basically is entirely like Blade Runner the career, except for this movie. And so I hunted it down for that reason. And then it's an Owen Wilson starring movie about a serial killer? At least the... Like That's the, the, broad, pitched. the broadest way, so it's like, oh, that seems really interesting. And I say all this because in my fourth viewing, I think I have a theory as to what is happening <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> like, I finally think I have an idea of, like, symbolically what it's trying to do. And I'm going to argue broadly, and we'll get into this more uh, thing by thing that we talk about, but I think the reason that this movie is so boring is because what it essentially is is something a la... Waiting for Godot or The Stranger. Not that great or not that important, but it's like an existentialist work where everything that happens is more or less irrelevant because it's like an, a vessel for like a certain type of philosophy or an engagement with certain big ideas and... It, like I thought of I thought of the stranger a lot just because I love the book the stranger but if you go through plot wise very little happens it's all about the character's internal monologue and what that internal monologue means as like a a thought process or like a series of beliefs and so I think broadly it fits into that and so I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad movie in any way. I was watching it. I couldn't really think of things to criticize, but what it is doesn't make an enjoyable movie by any means. And well, and I, I think that it's clear that you can extrapolate some kind of like philosophical meaning on how death attacks people or how, you know, like the character's attitude towards death and how he keeps saying things like, I try to find meaning in things, or this is, the story is mine, and I get to tell it. You know, like, those kinds of overarching broad statements. But I don't think it combines to any kind of meaningful result. I read it as one of the times when I got a little bored and I was thinking in my own head was, oh, is this just being told through the boring eyes of Owen's character? Because he himself is kind of expressionless, emotionless. There you go. It's like his perspective on things. Like, very straightforward. Things happen. Time passes. Well, before we get too into, like, specific examples, uh, I do want to talk about the trailer. Because the trailer, uh, as you kind of could... Uh, we haven't really gotten into the movie too much, but the movie is kind of a hard movie to just sum up. Like we said, there is no clear plot. Uh, we're having a hard time, like at, like I said, it's my fourth viewing, and I have like just now a working theory. So imagine trying to advertise this movie. Uh, we have seen recently with movies like Mother, where sometimes the best option is to just trick people <laughs> into seeing the movie. And here, uh, the trailer for this movie is easily one of the best trailers ever. And it's actually arguably a better movie than The Minus Man, at least in terms of, like, front to back being captivating, having, like, a really rewarding ending. Like, this trailer has a more satisfying ending than the movie. But um, does someone want to describe the trailer for someone who somehow cannot look up the trailer and watch it before listening? <laughs> but they can listen to our podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to be safe. You never know. Sure. 
Uh, well, so the trailer is two people walking out of the Minus Man after seeing it, a man and a woman, and they're discussing it, and it cuts to them, like, walking through a park, and eating dinner, and getting food at a diner, and walking through another park, and then walking next to, like, a river, and then all of a sudden the guy... Well, the whole time they're talking about the Minus Man, they're talking about clearly things from the movie, but we have no context... So we don't know, we just know that they're like, well, what did this mean? And what did this mean? Or what did you think of him? And it's that, that type of conversation where it's... Yeah. Right. They're talking about the the implications of the movie. Yeah. And, and it's, it's cute, too, because it's like they're, like, arguing and flirting, kind of. Yeah. And then he so- notices the sunrise, and she freaks out. Yeah. And she starts, she just leaves. She starts running. And there's a good running scene. Yeah, she runs and she runs through traffic and she runs through uh, like a security gate and she gets into a locker room. You see her take her bra off. She puts on a swimming suit and then it's revealed that she's a lifeguard and I guess she was supposed to be uh, watching the pool because it shows two bodies floating in the pool dead. <laughs> uh, and she, she... So basically, yeah, because she was talking about the Minus Man all night, uh, she didn't get to her job in time and people died. So, and yeah. they said, like, so after this moment where she, like, sees the dead bodies, the tagline comes up where they're like, be careful, you can talk about it all night. Or something, yeah. something along those lines. And then no clips from the movie at all. <laughs> yeah, you don't Zero even know clips. that Owen Wilson's in the movie yeah. from the trailer. And uh, Yeah, that's going to be one of the only trailers where it doesn't have any footage from the movie. I think Toys, I think the trailer for Toys is that what? way. Where it's like Robin Williams in a field and he's dressed up in costume and he's just like, hey everybody, I, have, I haven't seen the trailer in a long time so I can't say for sure. But it's like, they, they, they parody it on The Simpsons. because what the trailer. a good movie. <laughs> you guys yeah, you like Toys? I love Toys. I like Toys. I know, nobody likes Toys. Nobody likes Toys. Why does nobody like Toys? Toys is really bad. Cusack is a treasure. Well, yeah, and she's a robot, but, um, yeah, toys is, uh, upon closer inspection, it it can be tough. There's no plot. There's music that's not bad in it. I don't know. I I still love I it. like colorful factory movies. I was gonna say the production design is solid. But the point the point <laughs> being that uh, so the the trailer for the Minus Man <laughs> is really amazing. I can't really think of a similar trailer, and even all my other favorite trailers are nothing like this at all. And so it's really the trailer like, will go down in history more than the movie will. Yeah, if there was yeah. like a class. That, like, a, a film school class that taught about the art of the film trailer, this would easily be, like, one of the first ten considered. Was, just for, like, how... Oh, it, if you just Google the, it... Even if you take it out of the film world and put it in the terms of advertising, yeah. it's, like, a very high-brow, uh, high-concept ad for a movie. Did Fancher make that? I, yeah, did he write I it? I didn't see anything... When I was reading about it, I, granted, only did a little bit of research right before... Um, but I did not see whether or not he did it or if it was, like, an ad exec or what. Because it doesn't, like... It's pretty brilliant. At, at very least, it doesn't seem like Hampton Fancher to me because it does not indicate anything about the movie's tone sure. or, like, who the audience for the movie would be or anything. Well, and it, even in the in the trailer, it picks up on things that don't matter towards the movie. Like, 
like uh, they talk about the hair in the envelope, or they talk about his like the the football player or yeah. Cheryl Crow. I mean, they're things that matter, but it's like like it, talking they don't talk about the broader things. Yeah, but it's like hinting at it because if they're talking about the broader things, that would give away like the whole. You you could get away with not watching the movie, <laughs> and so they have to like hint at sure. the, the pieces of the mystery to like draw you in, and then. Uh, you get sucked in. But since we talked about the trailer now, um, let's talk about what the movie is. <laughs> and I guess to just give you a broad over overall summary, the movie follows uh, a character named Van, played by With Owen two Wilson. Ends. He played by Owen Wilson, and Owen Wilson is like the sort of drifter. He it appears to be a California town. He wanders into a California town after sort of uh, murdering Cheryl Crow after meeting her in a bar. He wanted to soak up the sun. But the way he murders her and the way he murders people in the movie is he has this powdered fungus. I guess we find out it's fungus <laughs> later in the movie. But he has this powder. Powdered and fungus, he mixes man! It, <laughs> he mixes it with amaretto, or I think once he just spoons it directly into water but it's people drink the powder in a liquid and then they die almost immediately yeah almost like immediately. cheryl crow dies within seconds of consuming it um the same, football player same dies. The football player but he, he at one point there's a piece of narration where he says it can take up to 10 minutes but we never see that but the yeah. point is so owen wilson kills he kills uh cheryl crow and then he comes into town and kills the football player it's, he's like the star football player. He's a star football player, but the key thing that the plot is, the football player is just like, he, he's, he, we'll get into, I guess, the details of that in a little bit, but the football player is not the plot, and him killing him is not the plot. Right. After he kills the football player, what more or less happens, though in the background there is people worrying about the football player trying to solve it, the primary plot point is Owen Wilson getting a job at the post office and then more or less working a normal mundane job in a small town while kind of narrating to himself and every once in a while having these encounters with uh, the people he lives with who he's renting a room from who are played by Brian Cox and Mercedes Rule <laughs> and uh, and then he this co-worker who clearly has a thing for him played by Janine Garofalo and there's a few other people um, there's these like Cops who are clearly figments of his yeah, imagination, played by Dwight Yoakam and Dennis Haysbert. And so it's all these things, like I said, he this the, the first two murders happen very quickly, and then it's just a lot of this where it's like him working the job, him philosophizing, he meets with these people, and their little stories kind of progress. In the end, he does end up poisoning a random guy. At a diner. At a diner, but otherwise we he he doesn't murder anybody else beyond that. There is another murder. But he is not responsible for it. Yeah, who's responsible for and, that murder? Well, and I guess we can talk about that. But so, what I described to you is the movie. <laughs> so that's why we emphasize it is it is about what they taught, what the philosophy seems to be, or at least what the the existential metaphor seems to be. Because beyond that, this is another movie that brings up the master issue of it's not able to be enjoyed as a piece of entertainment it exists as right. a piece of uh like allegory allegory and if you don't latch onto it that way like i did the last three times i watched it uh it's very easy to like have the movie just kind of go past you in a daze where it doesn't really mean anything in a and trance translate yes but um so i, I kind of said i thought it was very existential and it reminded me of the stranger and things and the director himself 
he said that the character of Van reminded him, and by the way, this is based off a novel uh, by, I believe, Lou McCreary. I don't know what else he wrote. Uh, this is not a character created by Hampton Fancher, but he described the character of Van as a combination of Norman Bates, Chauncey Gardner, and Billy Budd from the Herman Melville novel. Who's uh, Chauncey Gardner? From being there. Oh! And if you think of it that way, like, this is the writer and director saying this. And so we have this man who kills some people, but mostly doesn't kill people, and kind of just floats through people's lives. And with these three things, I, that's kind of how I had this working theory of what the movie is. And I would argue that what the movie's trying to do is have Owen Wilson's character be, like, the human embodiment of, like, a death figure. A per like, almost like death in the sense of, like, the seventh seal, where it's, like, a grim reaper type. But also, instead of just being, like, an abstract death figure, is also literally a human being, and so has the ability to, like, be in the world as, like, a spirit, but also engage with people as a human. And so when he engages with them as a human, he is, like, trying to meet them on their level, but ultimately sees it on the level that we hear in his internal monologue or whatever. Uh, what were you about to say, Emily? <laughs> He's like a death Jesus. He's a death Jesus. He's yeah. half death, but also real human well and they, they he, he says the, the quote <laughs> yeah what <laughs> half death half human he's half man half actually sword. christ was a hundred percent god and a hundred percent man so he, he's a hundred percent both he's a hundred percent whatever you believe <laughs> <laughs> he's a hundred percent the savior that humanity needed i mean he did give these people real peaceful deaths it's very impersonal, which is him, like, in, in his entirety, he's so imperson impersonal. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, is, like, the way in which they go out of their way to, like, of all the things they emphasize, they really emphasize the nature of how he kills people and the way he feels about it. And you're right, it is not personal, it's not violent. He says something along the lines of, I try to do the bare minimum necessary. Yeah, but he also, I've never done anything violent. Yeah, and he also says, I take someone's natural momentum and I draw it towards me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, thinking about that, because he says that very early, I thought of it as like, if he is a death figure, he floats into like a world and the people who are basically just like on the verge of dying, like they come to meet him. It's almost like that. Um, because I did not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. The Emily Dickinson poem. It's that sort of thing of like the people who are going to die naturally are attracted to him because they're attracted. They're, they're on their way to death. They're like having that meeting with death. And that ends with their, them being gone, being taken out of the world. Yeah. And so that's why it's not that he has any actual personal stake in it. Like, there seems to be this, like, like almost like a fourth dimensional logic to this that we never see, where it's like, okay, this person has to die. Mm -hmm. and but that's the way he's presented in, like, the first half of the movie. But once he kills the football player, he talks about how he broke his own rules. Yeah. And how his, his rules are... You never kill someone you know, and you never kill someone in a town that you live. Yeah. But that's, and that's why, again... I, and I, I think that's where, like, kind of the fallout happens towards the end of the movie, where he's, like, going, he's fainting, and 
like really hallucinating those guys and well and that's why i say like i have it's only a working theory because i feel like there's still a lot of stuff in here that i can't quite explain but at least with the football player stuff i'll kind of say like there is in this small town there's a football team and the the kid who's like the star quarterback of the team uh is this guy named gene who if you remember from welcome to the dollhouse is the sexy guy in the brother's band he's also in ugly betty <laughs> he's in a lot of stuff he's really great um oh yeah he is the sexy guy in the band <gasps> yeah yeah, that Don oh. Wiener has a crush on. Um, Does he have super long hair in that movie? Yeah, and he tell he breaks the news to Don that special means retarded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so they have this thing where we they go to a football game and see him be great. He like intercepts a pass and gets a touchdown, wins the game. Good and, words, I didn't know how. <laughs> but they they br- they have like a big dinner where they like. His, the, the football player's dad and Brian Cox and Van and a bunch of people all go out to dinner to celebrate. And after everyone's gone, there's this moment where Brian Cox says more or less that, um, like, his life isn't really all that great. But having Gene, it gives him hope. Gene is hope. And it is after that that, like, almost like a scene later, maybe. So is Gene, Gene Jesus? Gene is killed by death. And, and they go out of their way to be, like, that it's random. Like, he also says later, why, like, one of the, the things, the, the voices he hears in his head says to him about killing uh, somebody, why would the urge say that one, not this one? And it's getting at that idea of, like, death as, like, a, like a natural force, like something exists as a spirit, has no, it has no bias. It chooses at random. Yeah. And so his killing of people like people who are all already close to death makes sense and also some people who it's like like this young football player uh like it was it's just his time it might I mean, to me that's it, that's what made the most sense based on what was presented was that everything about like why he would have died is irrelevant he just dies he is taken from this town and we see the fallout of him being taken the hope being killed off like Van isn't there to literally destroy hope in the town, but by killing the person he has to kill that the urge dictates he kill, hope as a side effect, an unintended side effect, is destroyed for Brian Cox, which seems to lead to... Uh, his downfall. His downfall. Yeah. Well, I presumed in the beginning, because he killed Cheryl Crow first, that... I thought maybe more things were going to be related to that because she, like, was at a bar drinking all day. She was drunk when he met her, and I was like... And she got high. She took a bunch of pills. Also, she was a liar. She said uh, she wasn't even 30, and she was breaking down, and she had all these pills. I looked it up. She was born in 1962. She was not under 30. (laughs) So she's a liar and a junkie. And I thought maybe he would have, like, a little bit of a moral compass. So, I thought it was at least interesting when he killed the football guy. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, surprising at first. Because well, you, you have that moment as an audience member where you're like, is he gonna let Gene drink the flask? It's really great you phrased it that way. He lets Gene 
drink the flask. He, he doesn't like, he, ever make anyone. Never makes anyone do anything. And it's like, especially with Cheryl Crow, Cheryl Crow, he like offers it to her because she shot heroin. She's dead. Like that's the implication. Yeah. But Gene, he has it on the, the dashboard and Gene even asks like, hey, is that liquor? And he says yes and then changes the subject. Yeah. He really is like, if, if you're going to die, you're going to make it happen. Yeah. It's like a fate thing it's not about him actually yeah and that's why when you watch that scene that's one of the few scenes that that worked for me is because he is being that ambivalent death uh figure where where you know gene is making his own choices yeah and even though if we want to call owen wilson's character death even though van is giving him every opportunity he's not pushing it on him yeah He's not saying, like, yeah, that's liquor. Do you want some? Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, he's a high school kid. So, yeah. like, yeah. Van, uh, or Gene knows what he's what he's getting himself into. But uh, I did think it was interesting that the flask was out. Yeah. Because usually he's hiding it. Mm-hmm. Like, for the rest of the movie, he's basically hiding it. Yeah. Like, when he poisons the guy in the diner, he goes through, like, a painful effort to make it as not noticeable as possible. Yeah, that's a good point. Again, not noticeable? What's another? <laughs> unnoticeable. Unnoticeable. <laughs> there you Incognito. go. Incognito. Inconspicuous, maybe? Well, and, and another thing I want to I bring up in terms of this, like, overall idea of these deaths being random is later in the movie somewhere... Oh, there... Uh, Van takes... Oh, Janine Garofalo's character is named Farron. Uh, Everyone, and, well, yeah, and Shell Crow is Casper. Everybody's got the stupidest everybody names. Everybody's got weird names. But uh, Van and... Lori. But they call her Casper. Remember? He's like, well, oh. this is directed by someone with the name Fancher. Yeah. Hampton Fancher. <laughs> do you think they call him Hampty? Fancy? <laughs> Does he do the Hampty dance? <laughs> Hampty fancy. But anyway, uh, I, what I was going to say was on the on the idea of these deaths being random. There's a scene where Van and Farron like they they have a day off work and so they go to the beach and they're talking about the water. And Van says to Farron, "Do you know why they didn't learn to swim?" Uh, back in the old days when they worked on ships, something along those lines was clumsily delivered. And she says no, and he says, if you knew how to swim, it would take so much longer to drown. And I was kind of talking about about that, like, fourth-dimensional logic to who dies and who doesn't, and this randomness and this idea of, like, there has to be a reason for something to happen. And the idea that, like, if you knew you were going to die, if you knew, like, the logic that would lead to your death, it would make it so much worse because you would fight against it. You would fight for that self-preservation, whereas if you don't know you're going to die, you'll go so much easier. And that's the idea of of what happens with Cheryl Crow and what happens with the football players. They don't know they're going to die, and so they go very <coughs> easily. Again, the whole thing of they're dead in seconds. And, I, I don't know, I thought that was... Um, like that line, there's a couple lines. Most of them dialogue. But that so... scene is pretty inexplicable because if she kinda... gets drunk and passes out in the car on the way to the beach. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that little uh, exchange, 
they hug each other on the beach. It's kind of, it reminded me of, like, that scene in The Swimmer where they run with the horse. Yeah. Where well, it's like, why is this happening? Yeah, again, like I said, I still don't have a full theory, but I'm just trying to lay down some of the, like, ideas sure, the, that yeah. I think the movie's getting at, so it'll be easier to talk about some of the other scenes. Another thing I did want to talk about in terms of, like, the game playing going on here. This is actually, this might be, like, the last major thing I ever wrote down, written down. No, a couple other things. Anyway. I have some things I want to talk about. Uh, so, okay. So there's, we mentioned Van moves into a house with uh, this husband and wife and... The Derwins. The Derwins. And when he's, he goes, he's seeing the house for the first time and there's a picture of a girl in the room and it's very, it's, it's eventually revealed that she is the college age daughter of the Derwins. And initially it's, he's, Van is told that she's in college, but it's later revealed that she has run off. Like, we, they basically know nothing about what happened to her. What if he already murdered her? It could be. I mean, we don't know. Uh, we don't probably know, not. We don't know what happened with her. Yeah, it's 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 clear. It's definitely. And I think that's why the gene disappearing is so hard for them. Yeah. Because but, they already had that happen. Yeah, definitely. But also, the key thing of if this idea of loss, like how Gene being, uh, they don't know where he is, it like being this thing of like, oh, it's death. Like he's probably dead. Like they have a conversation where it's like his car is still here. He never left town. Some, he, he's here. He's dead. Um, so this idea of like absence suggesting death. Like, this idea, and then literalized by the person moving into the daughter's room being this death figure that moves into their house, replacing what used to be their human daughter. And then, also, there's a scene where... Oh, are you gonna do the, you're the daughter Exactly. Now. Where, basically... Uh, it's it, like, I don't... Who, who says that? Is it Brian Cox? It's Brian Cox. Cox. Yeah, it's We're, Mr. Derwin. He says, I think he's wasted and it's... Thanksgiving or Christmas, and he goes, "You're the daughter now." Yeah, because because uh, they what they, a creepy line. Yeah, but the if somebody said that to me, but the idea is that like they're getting attached to him. I think it's specifically saying, "You're the daughter now." About how his wife Jane Mercedes Rule is becoming attached to having just somebody, and like the fact that um, that's why it's kind of weird with him, where he is clearly like a split between a human. And some sort of spiritual presence, because as a human, he is, like, a person who they're like, we need someone in the house to keep us from thinking about this loneliness. Yeah. And so they put that into this stranger who more or less wants to just keep his head down and not be super attached or connected to anybody. He just wants to do his thing. But then on the subtextual level, it's they are obsessed with death like they, they're they're going to their their mind has stopped focusing on their daughter is focusing on something much darker they aren't getting better they're getting worse it's like that that's kind of what which it is funny because like. when uh when he first moves in mrs derwin says uh with the tenant you want to keep your distance yeah you don't want to get attached and and then that's exactly what ends up happening. Yeah, and then she uh, yeah, and she... then she gets murdered, <laughs> which that's what I want to talk about. Okay. Yeah, that is like the loose end that I don't understand. And the this fact movie. that they didn't really. So he had the tape recorder at one point, and she sees him with the tape recorder in his room and asks him, and he said, "Well, I sometimes record my thoughts." Which, I guess, we don't really see him use it prior yeah. to that, though. So it seems like an add-on. And then later, Brian Cox comes into the room and tells 
um, van that his wife's been listening to it. But he also says, oh, I, I erased it. I, I wiped the tape. Right, and Brian Cox says that she didn't hear anything. Yeah. So it's all weird. Did he wipe the tape or did he never record anything? I mean, he talks to himself the whole movie. But, but... He, we never see him actually talking there. Yeah, so he's not verbalizing. There's no like Norm MacDonald dirty right. work moment where he's like, note to self, get boil cream for a giant boil on my ass or anything like that. It's always like him like driving a truck and then like narrations playing over or him sorting mail or whatever. Like they go out of their way to show him doing something where he's not recording himself and not talking. Right, and also right uh, after that happens, there's the scene where, uh, what's her name, Jane? Yeah, the wife. Yeah, the wife, uh, or Mercedes Rule, where Jane goes into Owen Wilson's room and she's like, what's a four-letter, you know, she's asking him for the crossword answers, but then she quickly segues into talking about all the mysterious deaths that have been happening in the area. And she says something like, I don't believe this is coincidence, do you? And... Yeah, she's trying to put a logic on it. Right, she's yeah. trying to put a logic on it. And so, I basically, after that scene, she's not in the movie. Yeah. She yeah. disappears. You don't even see her, you know, them go find out that she's dead. You just hear it. Yeah. She is done in the movie after that scene. And so... Because there's this framework of Owen Wilson being kind of the narrator and also having some mental issues, I was trying to figure out if Mercedes Rule was murdered by Owen Wilson because she's trying to put a logic on death and death doesn't really have a logic. Or if Brian Cox murders her because... I don't know. Something. Okay, well, Google, like, what are your theories? I was thinking what that you... because he said, Owen, or Van says earlier that he, what, something about the momentum of the person? Yeah, and the, if so, the, Brian, yeah, someone's natural momentum, and I pull and it toward I think uh, Brian Cox's character has a natural momentum to be violent. In the past, it had only been to himself. Sure. But um, if she had confronted him about him being violent to himself, he could have maybe turned on her, and him being around the influence of Van could have amplified his urges to be violent. Yeah, I think the movie sets up a significant amount of evidence to strongly suggest Brian Cox murdered Jane. Right, and I think that that's, that's kind of my theory because I feel like Jean, the football player's death, is the final straw. And there's something that happens before that that sets this up, if, if you think about it in context, which is, do you remember... There's a scene, it's where everything's still kind of normal, before Gene has died, where uh, I think Owen Wilson is standing in the upstairs room and he's watching Brian Cox in the yard. And Brian Cox is walking through the yard and there's something playing on the piano. There's like a song playing on the piano and all of a sudden Brian Cox freezes and goes into like a karate pose and the music completely stops while he does this. He does this slow karate pose and like like he's, he's tai doing... Chi. Tai Chi. that's it. And... Um, and then the moment he stops and goes back to walking, the music resumes. It like yeah. it's like this complete like it's like one of the only like reality breaking moments that happens to someone other than Owen Wilson. But he watches this happen and then says like maybe I was wrong about Doug being violent. Doug couldn't kill anybody, not how he is now. And then after that, because like I said, I was arguing that Gene's death 
is something that has to happen due to the random nature of death, but the side effect of it killing off hope is not something that Owen Wilson can control, and so that's the thing that makes Doug into the type of person who could be violent. Like yeah. you're saying, like it does seem like it is worked out that way. At least they give us enough to think that. Yeah. Uh, it just seems so, uh, so random at the end yeah. that she's murdered, and the police come and investigate it. But the, actually, the scene that they show up, uh, and actually, God, I keep saying actually. <laughs> okay, backtrack. <laughs> Uh, so, Owen Wilson hallucinates those two cops, and they say, you know, you're not going to be so lucky, the next two guys that come, they're going to be looking for you, and, you know, they're already on their way, or, you know, whatever yeah. they say, and then the next scene is two cops showing up at the house, but those two cops aren't there to arrest Owen Wilson, they're there to tell Mr. Derwin that his wife, his wife's body has been discovered. Yeah. And he plays it like he is not that upset. Yeah, well, and uh, you talking about this makes me think about the fact that, like, everybody in this movie kind of does lie at some point. Like, even if it's little white lies, there's, like, a constant, like, like, Owen Wilson, it's very clear very quickly that when he, when someone asks him background information, he's just kind of saying something. It's not an overly complicated lie, but it doesn't really seem to be the truth or at least it doesn't actually matter it's like ethereal information and there's other moments where it's like the night before jane is murdered brian cox goes and asks van to borrow his truck like he's asking me to borrow his truck the next day he has a dentist appointment and then after jane turns up dead and brian cox is taken to identify her body they have a conversation where he says like they're going to be asking you about the truck because i borrowed it and van says like well maybe you didn't borrow it like, that whole thing of, like, just, there's, and so, with the whole Brian Cox thing, it is tough to say, like, is he actually, I mean, I, like I said, I think the movie's making the case that he did it, but there's enough in the way he's presented where it does seem like he's innocent. Like, we never see that, the movie never gives us that, like, sh the smoking gun moment of, like, yeah. oh, he did it. He, like, has total plausible deniability from our point of view. He just has the reason to be in a situation to kill her, uh, based on what we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. What is your guys' view of Janine Garofalo in this movie? Yeah, she's the toughest. I don't know. I... She's like a drunk innocent. Yeah, because I, I feel like, because I, I was saying this idea of like, the people who are going to die are drawn to him, and she is not going to die and she's drawn to him and that creates this like clear awkwardness for him where he like doesn't know how to talk to her he tells bad stories he behaves incorrectly um leads her on leads her on but he like again this the whole human spirit thing where he like acts around her like a human like he there's nothing there's nothing like supernatural well, or like fourth dimensional i guess about their relationship it if, seems if we want to continue the death uh theory it could be that she is toying with death you know flirting with death flirting oh flirting, flirting with death and then when she finally has a violent encounter with death she rejects it yeah which is why he recognizes that she's not truly drawn to him and feels that awkwardness because 
her flirtation with death is just like, oh, I'm bored. I live in a small town. I want excitement. Sure. And I don't want to die. I just want to live. Whereas other people want to die. Or like... Yeah, see, it's like, like he's like benevolent uh, like in showing her how destructive death is. And she realizes when they're like wrestling on the floor that she... It's like her. Yeah, she, she, they, they have like that thing. It's a coming to God moment. Well, and they talk about, earlier, there's the moment where she, they bring up the fact that she doesn't lock her doors. Mm-hmm. Like, she lives this sort of life of just, like, anything can happen to her and she doesn't care. Like, she's always drinking. She gets drunk enough to fall asleep while going with Van. And Van is someone who later, yeah, like, overpowers her and holds her down and presumably hurts her a little bit. Yeah. But she still is, like gets drunk in front of him and is like, oh yeah, my doors are always unlocked and like, and has like a dog and has like a very tiny dog. Doesn't really seem to have anybody else in her life that would protect her. So yeah, it is like a good, it is like a wake up moment of like, I encountered death and I want to live. And so I fight back. I think that's my favorite reading of that theory. Yeah. Is her character. And I think it works the best. It also makes the most sense when we talk about my two favorite characters, which are... One, easily forgettable, it's the guy who works with them at the post office, has no lines, always is staring at me. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he yeah. is just staring at him. It's like he he recognizes who he is and he just stares at him. Mm-hmm. Second is the lady cop. Yeah. Who randomly shows up at only then. twice. First, when he's sleeping on a beach in his car and it's like she realizes he's he's different. And then at the end, where she shines a light on his face yeah. while he's driving down the highway and lets him go. Got so that, and that's the end that of the last shot. shot is so good. Those are my two favorite characters because they recognize who he is and they're kind of letting him know they know. Like, shining a light, literally. Yeah, and, and also, as a police officer, she realizes that she can't fight death. Death is inevitable. Yeah. Again, another good reading. She can do what she can to be like, don't be this here. This should just be called the Death Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, the mind <laughs> that they talk about in the trailer, the Minus Man. When he's around, nothing adds up. But also, like when he's around, it like subtracts a person sure. from the world, like that sort of thing. I was also thinking of the Midas Man, and I was like, oh, everything he touches dies, yeah. <laughs> turns to gold, or dies. It turns to fungus. Oh, I, I wrote down this couple of quotes from towards the end when he feels like the police are catching up to him, which every time he talks about the police catching up to him, like you mentioned, he has that feeling and then the police don't suspect him at all. Like this guilty conscience that he has is not actually relevant to real world morality. It's just something that he like puts on himself. But um, he's later talking about the murders and covering up. I think this is after the diner murder. But he says something along the lines of the urge erases the path it traveled, which is like so weirdly phrased. It's like that is so that's pure the philosophy. The urge erases the path it travels. The urge erases the path it travels, which I took to mean if the urge is basically who is going to die. It's the idea that the act of killing someone, the way in which he kills them it removes the question of how they died. The idea of the football player never being found is like, uh, like when people die and they disappear, it it takes away this like, um, this ability to track it from the source. And so it's more just like 
the act, like the disappearance or the death. The, so their urge to die erases the fat, erases the guilt of Owen Wilson, or, or at least the path that led him then to Owen Wilson. Yeah, like basically, like the thing that instead it, of it being like it oh, covers this, its own tracks, exactly, they were it, it going justifies to get there itself. Anyway. Yeah, like that sort of thing. Like Got kind it. of the, okay. the literalization. I guess like the Cheryl Crow scene is a really good like. Rosetta Stone of this movie, but I imagine it's like the urge being like he kills her, but then the path it traveled, the heroine yeah, I is. I really want to make it into a song. It's yeah. her favorite mistake. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now that I know a lot of Cheryl Crow songs, I was gonna say I was gonna make a needle and the damage done, but that's that's the wrong musician. Uh, but also during that section where he's talking about the urge and everything, he says as these deaths are piling up, I am becoming a fact is the way he describes himself. And if death is this, like, ethereal thing, the fact that it's becoming, like, it's not just, like, all oh, these people are slipping away, but it's this accumulation of death, and then other people are causing deaths that he's not causing, mm -hmm. that means that, like, death is no longer just, like, a fact of life. It's, like, like a fact of life in terms of, like, a thing we live with, a thing that is natural, but it's becoming, like, a presence. It's becoming a real presence that people have to deal with. And that's when he leaves, is when mm. death, like, a death that's, like, more uh, real than even he is, uh, and enters and overwhelms everybody, and they can't continue Yeah, they, they don't life. even show the violent death, which is um, Jane being bludgeoned. Yeah, with a hammer death. in the back of the head, they say. Which, there was that dream... Doesn't he have a dream where someone hits him with the hammer? Where he dreams it's it's like one of the cops or something? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, well, and doesn't Jane wake him up? Yeah. Hmm. I don't remember exactly how that moment played out, but yeah, there's like something Isn't there. Isn't that the moment where she wakes him up and she goes, you must have fainted? I don't remember. Yeah. Man. Yeah, something Parallels. like... Parallels! I don't know what the fainting is. I That's definitely a, a perfect example of something from the movie where it's like... Kind of misses. I, I kind of just flies over my head. I I think that we are giving this movie more meaning for me as we talk about it. But I feel like this movie doesn't deserve the meaning that we're giving. No, I I, I do. Think... I I think that. Let me let me. So I I think that this movie does a poor job of creating an atmosphere where you could understand Owen Wilson's character as an allegory or a philosophical stand-in. Um, I think it's, as you put it earlier, he's too humanized to go there on a first viewing. I think that it has to, to it, it takes multiple viewings to get to that kind of point. Well, the the my the only disagreement I was going to point and the reason I brought up the stranger earlier is because I think my problem with this is that it fundamentally would be better as a book. This is one of those things because it's oh, so much sure. about interior lives and philosophy. This is the sort of thing that probably on the page is just like you get it. You just every every line feeds into each other. But here you can't just have it be all narration right. and you can't just have it be all abstract, especially with this cast that they got. Uh so especially like Man, what a good cast. Really good cast. And so they had to try to like hit a tone that I don't think works. The stranger well, they I, didn't have enough like symbolism on screen well, besides yeah. Have know. you guys ever read The Stranger? No. The main character of The Stranger 
is both a guy who does things and also to a certain extent a living representation of the concept of nihilism. And so the whole book plays through where you're like, the, the opening, of the, I think the first line is like, mother died today. And it just starts where it's like every line is just like, he's just living a normal, boring life, but you read it through the lens of nihilism. And so you see, like, you're just living a normal, you're seeing his normal, boring life, but the way in which sentences are written and the way in which he fails to react to things is the book. And so then eventually when he does do the one action that is a, a plot point in the whole thing, um, and then you get the aftermath, you see like how despite things happening, it doesn't actually change the philosophy or the point of view. And that's what I'm sort of getting at. I feel like The Stranger, I don't think it's ever really been adapted significantly, and it really wouldn't work. And I think that's kind of my thing with The Minus Man, too, is... I, like I said before, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the movie other than it's a movie of something that would automatically be better as a book in pretty much any imaginable circumstance. Like, there, sure. there could be maybe a better way to do this movie. He's the first-time director, and so obviously not working with the best. But I think even, like, a really great... Like, if say, like, we compared to The Master, if Paul Thomas Anderson made this it still would have been better as a book. I did have that moment in, in uh, while watching this where I was like, man, I can't wait for Paul Thomas Anderson's next movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think I have anything else. I have a couple tiny other things. Emily, do you have any other? I talked about the postal worker. <laughs> I think for me, the, the thing that we haven't touched on is how the women of this movie are almost like a conscience. I thought of something we haven't talked about. What? Irene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What the fuck with that license plate? Yeah. Well, and I realized and the reason... The, trailer. the reason that he didn't want to get drawn is because of the sketch artist thing. Yeah. I didn't think about that either, but yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Because, uh, so Irene's this character he runs into at a diner? Christmas? Something, yeah. It's like Chris, It's Christmas Day. That's another thing. This whole movie is set during like Christmas time, but it's filmed in like Southern California, and so it is like visually and aesthetically impossible to tell that it's Christmas unless they have a Christmas tree, and almost all Christmas trees are tiny Christmas trees. Yeah. You notice that? Do you like, mean Garofalo has a chair of a uh, child dressed in a Christmas tree yeah. outfit decoration. And, and when he's at Irene's, he's like, do you have a Christmas tree? And she says something like, oh, it's real easy to miss it. And there's like a camera move where the camera pans down to like a tiny Christmas tree on the yeah. floor. There's a bunch of stuff like that where it's like, it is Christmas season, but all of it is like very hidden away and like repressed. Like the joy of Christmas is not yeah. inf in infecting this town. Well, yeah, it's going through the Owen Wilson lens. Uh, which even when he gets a Christmas present, you don't feel like it's Christmas. Yeah. No, you're like, It's very oh, cold and geez. awkward and sad. Yeah. But yeah, so Irene ends up, they go back to her house, which I, again, I don't understand why they went to her she house. She as a person didn't make any sense. Why yeah. would an artist have a personalized license plate? Yeah, good point. Um, and she really pops up abruptly. Like, it really does not naturally segue into her appearance. Yeah. And she disappears as quickly as she appears, too. The other thing, too, that I think was uh, a trigger for Owen Wilson was he sees the painting that she did of the guy who's holding a gun to his head. Yeah. 
And I think he that makes him uncomfortable. Because it's a violent death. It's you giving a violent death, but to yourself. And so there's like it's like two levels of violence. Like it's the yeah. opposite of what he wants. He wants people like because also that's the idea of what I was saying of like if you know your death is coming, it's so much harder. And everything about what he represents is that death should be like this easy, peaceful thing that just like takes you away. Mm-hmm. And suicide is this. It, it take you will die and your pain will go away but you you die going out on like the saddest most upsetting note yeah um the yeah the women this movie it doesn't seem to have like any obvious like point of view on its men and women it seems yeah. to be like very normal hollywood types they they there are like there's like a uh, the guy who runs the post office is black uh, so it's like there, there's like a black guy in the town, but there's not well, really. Well, one of the the hallucinated cops. Oh, well, Dennis Haysbert, yeah, but it's like not like anything overly diverse. There's not like all men, and it's just like kind of very casually sort of balanced in a way that's like tr- it doesn't seem like it's trying to draw attention to like any specific message on gender. There's just kind of like the the women tend to be fitting this like existential theme more based on like broad ideas of what women represent rather than being like real women they uh, do these aren't like undeveloped characters but their function is more classically stereotypically female whereas like their human side is more believable as a human why did you pick this movie, Paolo? I picked this movie because, like I said, it's like it's an Owen Wilson serial killer movie where the and it's a serial killer movie where it's not exciting and the serial killer is not violent. So <laughs> right? there's like so many, and it's a movie made by a guy who made one of the most famous and acclaimed movies ever, and then made this and basically did nothing else until he got to make a sequel to his most acclaimed movie ever. Well, and he so made Sling Blade. He, well, no, he didn't make... He had, the producers of this oh. were getting back play, but he didn't do anything on it. This guy has, like, a long acting career, where he was a TV actor for yeah, a really long time. Yeah, he was time. in all those, like, 70s and 80s uh, Western sh- TV shows. And I don't know if you saw, but he was very briefly married to Lolita from Kubrick's Lolita. No way! Sue Ryan. Uh, so, and yeah. good... I, guess good for him uh it was like he was married to lolita like right around the like i think it was like the year after lolita came out was when he was married to lolita so okay yeah um cool okay so i hampton and lolita fancher and lion i have just a couple more things just straight things i wanted to mention from the movie and these are mostly we kind of talked broadly uh, about like the ideas of the movie these are all just dumb things i'm sure they probably won't have any important meaning but we'll see so first off, uh, one of the first time I think it's the first time Janine Graffalo talks to Van, uh, they're f- sorting flyers for the mail, and there's this flyer that has a clown holding a giant summer sausage, and it says the best sausage selection in town, and it seemed like very custom made for the movie. I kept trying to think at first that there was like a subliminal meaning, but it just seemed to be like like just a wacky piece of production design. Uh, there's a cat named Zipcode. Well, and later that flyer is presented to a priest. Oh yeah, and it's very phallic. That's true. But is that something? Yeah, it's yeah. Say, I don't know. Uh, the cat is named Zipcode. Cat doesn't really seem to be important. That's such a good cat name. Yeah, it really is. That'd be a good pet name. Like Zipcode. Zipcode. You call it the post office cat. Yeah. Zip for short. 
Uh, Van, as Carrie pointed out, Van keeps eating Clark bars, and we realize we had no idea what Clark bars are made of. So they're like they're like butterfingery type, like chocolate peanut butter candies. So again, something then, I haven't, I've been missing out on my whole life. And it, he did it multiple times, so it's like, is this a symbol or is this just like a thing? Maybe um, death has a vice. Because uh, <laughs> he didn't drink. No. So candy. Well, and then and you know, you notice that he doesn't really get shown eating a lot. Yeah, he's unless he's eating Clark bars. I mean, he does go to the diner, but but he's never he's not really shown eating at the diner. There's a reference, like there's a conversation he has with Mercedes Rule where she's like, "You can use the kitchen," and we don't really see him using the kitchen. Um, there, okay. Well, the, uh, the other one other thing I wanted to mention, which is to, it's toward the part where. I think it's like right after Owen Wilson finds out that they're going to hire him on for a few more months at the post office, it's when he cuts to him in the diner. And I don't even remember, but it's like immediately after he finds out that he's like, he's going to be staying in the town a little longer or that like they want him to stay in the town longer. He's looking at a newspaper and the headline he sees is boy trapped inside traveling exhibit. And it seemed like that was intentional. Mm. Like he is to some extent, like the, the boy tra trapped yeah. in the traveling exhibit. If Young we're going to be real stupid, candy. traveling exhibit is life. And he has Well, like, and he's been traveling the coast. Yeah. And he's feeling trapped by the life he's created for himself. And no matter what, his, if he is like a spiritual being or has some sort of spiritual function, no matter where he goes, his function will continue. So it is like he is the traveling exhibit and he, the human part of him is trapped inside of it like there is some sort of like duality of desire like a lot of his monologues to himself are about like i wish i could do this i wish i could learn about this what is the function behind this thing he, he's thinking of all these things but he he has he doesn't have the ability to just like devote his life to those things because the thing he has to devote his life to seems to be uh, this, like, removal of people from life. Like, killing them peacefully. Yeah. Killing them softly, to reference a future Secrets of episode. Or another song. Yeah. That too. But, uh, the, the one last thing I have in my notes, and then I'm out of notes, is there's the scene where Owen Wilson is searching for Gene. They're, like, scouring the woods, everyone in the town, and... It's just like, there's a bunch of stuff said in the scene, but there's a moment where he says something along the lines of, if I wasn't here, these people would be doing something else. And I feel like that's like the fundamental thesis of the movie is the way in which like death is this thing that integrates itself in your life and changes it. And it is, you have no control over it. It is always there and you have no ability to control who it strikes or when it strikes. Um, and if it wasn't there, people would just be doing the same stuff they always did. But death is the thing that makes sure that there is no permanent plan. You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to do this forever. Like, you don't know who you count on that will die or if you will die. And it's kind of, I don't know, that seems to be like if there was one thing that is for sure a subject of this movie and it's something you should take away uh, plot wise. Yeah. It's that. Uh, you're, you're not going to bring up the Dennis Hopper scene? <laughs> no! I totally forgot about that. I thought of that. That scene, that scene, makes, that scene makes no sense. Yeah, he, like, can't express himself. Okay, so describe, describe the scene really quickly. Just well, so. he's hallucinating the two cops, and he, and I can't remember what they even say to him, but he's like, I've, 
I've got seven expressions. They but say, I'll you're not expressing yourself. Yeah, and he's like, I've got seven expressions. I'll show you two of them. And then he basically makes like a, a as I described it, a Dennis Hopper type frustrated face of like, Aah! It's really Lynchian. It's like yeah, a, it's just like a like a silent yeah. scream of like like and he's like tensing and he's, all the muscles. He's in his curling face. up his hands and he's like shaking a little bit, but he's not really moving or anything. And he's just like, Arr! and then he turns to the right, and he does it. He does the the same yeah. expression just again, and then the cop says. That was good, but the first one was kind of the same as the second one. Yeah. It was like and then blue. that's like the end of the scene. Yeah. It was like the blue steel. And then uh, the hammer. <laughs> Magnum sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, I don't know. I, that was a scene where I was like, okay, I'm just going to yeah, there's definitely skip a, that over. There's a few things, listener, that we definitely didn't talk about because honestly, there is a lot of stuff that could be tied into these things that we think the movie's about and could not be. Uh, we mostly yeah, touched like on the, all the major things. The pickle ice cream. The pickle ice cream. There's yeah. There's pickle a bunch of conversations that seem to have some sort of symbolic weight, and other ones that don't. Consonants versus vowels. That seemed to just be like playful, like opening dialogue of like they got to be talking about something, and we haven't laid down our themes yet, so we got to get into it. But uh, yeah, if you guys don't have any more notes, let's get into teachable moments. Teachable moments. So you don't have to, I take it already, Carrie. No, I have okay. one. Go. I was just singing this song. Go. Teachable moments. Um, my teachable moment is about the trailer. Because right. I don't have one for the movie. <laughs> but I think that there's something to be said for a trailer that doesn't show any footage from the movie that it's advertising. And it still is considered to this day... You know, like eighteen years later, to be one of the best movie trailers of all time. So, essentially, my teachable moment is make better movie trailers. <laughs> I feel like every movie trailer I watch is exactly the same. It follows like the formula of, okay, here's the t the name of the studio. Then we'll show you the three actors that are in the movie. Then we show you. We show you them quipping a few times. Then we show you the main conflict. Then we show them fighting the main conflict. Then wrap it up with a quip or a, a, a spook or a kiss or... A yeah, because, you know, horror movies. Yeah. Um, and then flash to most handsome character. Then comes out whenever the date is. That's like all, that's like 90% of movie trailers. Yeah. We, I've been hearing that the Thor Ragnarok movie is supposed to be pretty good. So we watched that trailer the other day, and I was like, I know everything that's going to happen in this movie. I just watched the trailer. I feel like that's how most trailers are now. I thought that movie came out like three years ago. <laughs> There's a, a lot of those Thor movies. Boo. Okay. <laughs> but the new Thor movie is from the guy who did What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, I just watched that. Yeah. It's pretty good. It was funny. I mean, I love accents. Yeah. Oh, God. The Anything New Zealand accent is, is so great. It's good. Yeah. I love the werewolves in that movie. Yeah. They're pretty great. Okay, but that's my teacher. <laughs> <Great>. Werewolves <laughs> is 
why we are so as a society intent on making everything designed and aesthetically appealing and yet we don't do that for movie trailers we don't do that for a lot of things we do like like what you're saying with media with with trailers where it's like a mediocre palette that people are like all right well this clearly works yeah so let's just ape it fucking forever yes. <laughs> i am even guilty of this for my website but like i'm so sick of going to websites where it's like Oh, simple white background and then slides of, you know, the products or you like a simple picture of whatever they're selling. I'm so sick of that. It's like, do something cool. Make a pop of color. Use noises. Uh, use a bold font, you know. Use some like, gifts. Yeah, gif it up. <laughs> uh, and nobody's doing that. So your teachable moment is... Yeah, my teachable moment is... <laughs> Apply design and advertising principles to movie trailers. Or at least be creative with them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or more broadly, be creative. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, fellow. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> All right, Emily? Um, I don't know. I guess mostly I went into this thinking it was going to be something completely different because I didn't have an open mind about Owen Wilson. <laughs> And I think I do tend to do that about certain actors and actresses. If they're the lead, I'll have an impression beforehand, and I maybe shouldn't do that. And he didn't even say, wow, once. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. No, and he he wasn't bad in the movie. And he no. wasn't he was a little, who he wasn't who he normally is. He was a little uh, silly. But, yeah. What was your? What was your clothes? Charming at all? Sure. He like yeah. He had like that like that sort of like Ryan Gosling void about his personality, where he just like like flattened everything down and brought his charisma down and brought his like his usual charm, so that he did have that like serial killer sort of vibe to him, even if he wasn't a violent person. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good performance. Everyone was really good in this. Yeah. So yeah, don't discount movies because maybe you don't like the main character. <laughs> Why don't you like Owen Wilson? I'm just it's curious. not that I don't like him. I was just like had an impression of him that I was like, mm, I'm gonna. It's more like I challenge this movie to change my uh, impression of him. Oh, fair, sure. Maybe okay, that was it. That's fair. And it didn't really, but. I don't dislike him. I just like, meh. Yeah, he's not really my cup of tea either. Yeah, who knows? Maybe he's kind of a caricature to me. He could have, like, maybe a late period uh, turnaround or some director figures out how to use him. But yeah, right now, now that he's not really working with Wes Anderson, he mostly just does, like, stupid uh, R rated comedies. Yeah. Oh, not even R rated. I was going to say he's doing like RV level comedies. Well, that's that comedy that the Ed Helms one is an R rated comedy. Is it really? They talk about fucking his mom repeat. That's like every joke in the trailer is like guys being like, I fucked your mom. It was so awesome. Oh, wait. Is Joe still a thing? Yeah. Yeah. People apparently think that's funny, (laughs) I guess. But uh, I guess my teachable moment is, um, like we said, this is a very, uh, I think this is a very smart movie. I think it's really trying to do something interesting and unique. And our problem with it is that 
beyond all of that, which I think it tries really well, it's just not really enjoyable at all. I've seen it four times. I've never enjoyed it. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's a thing you really, I think I've definitely had this teachable lesson before, but this is a really good one to illustrate that. Just like you have to consider your audience and you don't have to dumb, there's no need to dumb a movie down, but there are intelligent ways to convey something while still being entertaining and bringing up uh, being there in comparison Oh, to this movie so is a perfect example because being there is very existential and, and high concept. A lot of people would probably argue with me, but I think it is a very smart movie and very interesting and also is, is something that's adapted from relevant a novel. For our time. But it still is it's it's still relevant. It's very funny. It's very sad. It's uh, obviously it's it's not serial killer related, but it's still getting into like these ideas and balancing them in a way that keeps it exciting. And I think I feel like if this movie either tried to play up the suspense angle so we really did think that there was a chance that Owen Wilson could get caught, or if it was or more it... of a character study so we cared a little bit more about what was happening. like, And it clearly we're not intended to, but I'm just saying like that type of movie would probably be more engaging. Or if it utilized its silence more by incorporating what Emily mentioned of like symbolism or creating some kind of like broader metaphor no but that's what i'm saying so often the music took us out of it yeah too that too but that's what i'm saying is like it those things if you added more symbolism it's the master problem where it's getting further away from an enjoyable movie Mm. it already has symbolism the reason a david lynch movie is enjoyable isn't because it's loaded with symbolism it's because that symbolism is mixing with totally crazy shit that you're like i gotta talk to people about this yeah and the minus man is full of symbolism and doesn't really have scenes where you're like you'll talk to we obviously like in the trailer talked about it for a long time after but i'm not gonna go tell anybody about this movie uh like it's not it's not that type of thing there's no breakout scenes where you're like i saw this unbelievable scene in this movie you're like no i totally believe that these scenes were made Oh, God, what am I going to do for the poster? Well, you'll you'll figure it out. But so that's... Uh, It's almost like the trailer where the two people on the date can't stop talking about it are just finding weird excuses to not sleep with each other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, so you want to go back to my place? Where she's like, well, that reminds me of Irene. Like, what were they there for? And then they just keep getting distracted. Yeah. But yeah, so... If you're going to make something, I, I, I always want people to make something highbrow. I was the defender of images when we covered images on this podcast, but you have to remember, like at least with images, images has a few scares and a few moments of like really amazing music, and and it looks really good, and it looks amazing. And the Minus Man is just like a very average movie aesthetically. I think it's well directed, but it's not excitingly directed. It's not. It doesn't have, like, a William Friedkin eye or Brisson's level of, like, focus. It's just very, like, you, you, he films what you need to see. He doesn't waste a lot of time, but he just doesn't have a good sense of tone or getting you involved. And if you're going to make these sort of highbrow, challenging movies or mess with genre and things like that, just remember that your audience it just needs something to make the experience more than just a purely analytical theoretical experience like that's why we go to college <laughs> we, we or we go to we go to grad school to get more or, knowledge get more knowledge and movies it's like i said i don't want to just uh, say don't make highbrow movies just try to be good enough artists that highbrow is fun highbrow in and of itself is fun 
that's a goal that everyone should be working toward anyway. <laughs> but especially with movies, uh, there's no reason to... Or effective. There's no reason to step backward. We've There's been a, a, a full century of filmmaking, at least. And so you can use some of those techniques to do this better and always improve and always make higher brow movies that are more enjoyable to watch or you get a lot out of so it's worth sitting through some boring stuff. But Hear that, movie makers who are definitely listening to us right now? <laughs> hey, what's his name? Uh, the director of uh, Nacho, the director of Open Windows. Hey, Nacho. Uh, that, so I'm sure he's listening to this <laughs> right now. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, all the directors. Thanks, Brian De Palma and uh, William Friedkin, <laughs> known listeners of this podcast. Brian and Bill. Brian and Bill, uh, thank you for your patronage. But uh, yeah, this, as you can tell, we are falling apart. So this has been The Secret Cinema. Thanks, everyone. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. And I'm Emily. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you sometime. Bye. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corona. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.Vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash paoloerasmus. Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lavey Productions. All rights reserved. Casper. Thanks for listening.